Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. Our focus today is on two elections, one in Italy and one in Venezuela, and the negative international reaction stirred by both. It's more than 11 weeks now since Italians went to the polls in parliamentary elections there, but the country is still without a new government. That is almost certain to change this week, following a deal agreed between the anti-establishment Five Star Movement and the far-right League Party, formerly known as the Northern League. That deal has caused some turmoil on Italian financial markets and given rise to concern among Italy's EU partners. Patrick Smith is our Europe editor and he joins me now from Brussels. Um, Paddy, how much concern is this proposed deal between the Five Star Movement and the League causing in Brussels and, and throughout the EU generally? Well, it's quite alarming because Italy is the third largest Euro country. Uh, so it, it, its economy matters to an extent much more than, than Greece's uh, did. And some commentators have actually said that, uh, that a, an, an Italian collapse would be actually worse for the European Union uh, than, than Brexit. What specific policies then are they coming forward with that are putting them on a collision course with Brussels? Well, both uh, the the two parties have uh, been elected on populist uh, mandates, which involve, for example, simultaneously cutting taxes uh, dramatically to create sort of uh, base rate taxes that are considerably lower than they are now, and at the same time increasing uh, welfare payments to to uh, to workers uh, to produce a 780 euro a month uh, minimum wage. For, for whole sections of the of the community, and they're also talking about um, restoring pension uh, provision to what they were before recent uh, cuts. Uh, all of these are extremely expensive uh, economic policies. Uh, they they don't explain where the money is going to come from, and the Italian national debt now stands at 130 percent of GDP. So it would be enormously worrying to the European Union and. It would also be in clear breach of the uh, guidelines of the European Union for budgets, the 3% deficit uh, target. And the the um, uh, Brussels would face uh, would would be faced almost immediately with with a, a confrontation with a new uh, regime in in Rome if if they went ahead with those. There are a number of policies which. Uh, although um, anti-Brussels, if you like, and causing problems, which will cause problems to Brussels, uh, are, do, do depend on Brussels' goodwill. So the, the two parties say that they want to reform the EU treaties, they want to revisit and re-imagine uh, the next uh, EU budget, and uh, they are uh, attacking uh, trade deals that the European Union is in, in, involved in. Now, all of those are things that would have to be agreed by Brussels, and there is precious little chance of, of that actually happening. Uh, David Cameron set off uh, uh, to, to Brussels before the uh, Brexit vote, saying that he was going to reform the EU treaty, and Brussels said, well, no, you're not, actually. The, the, the 27 of us are actually happy with what we have at the moment, or if not happy, exactly, uh, content uh, with uh, the, the arrangements we have at the moment. And if you open up the treaties, God knows what you're going to get. Now, of course, I think they they denied that they're sort of um, anti-Brussels or anti-EU, and I think that there was talk at one stage of them um, pulling Italy out of the Eurozone, but, but they, they pulled back from that, didn't they? So that well, was... They, uh, yeah, yeah go ahead. They have apparently pulled back out uh, of that, but a lot of commentators uh, um, believe that the threat to withdraw from the euro is there in in reserve. Now, it's it's actually uh, a threat that is uh, 
more a threat to the Italians themselves than it is to Brussels, although it would not be happy, uh, Brussels would not be happy with the Italian withdrawal from the euro. It would, would damage the euro, then, no doubt at all. But it's the Italian economy that would go into would go into meltdown if if it pulled out of of uh, the euro. We've already seen, for example, uh, even before a new government is installed, that uh, the the markets have reacted very adversely to uh, the the the, the pro- program of the new of the new government. Uh, the uh, bond yields have uh, have declined, and the the gap between um, yields and, and uh, the rest of the market has, has soared. So it's now much more expensive for, for the Italians to borrow, and it will get continually more expensive as this government proceeds. So it's not that Brussels will, will uh, stop them doing a lot of the things. It is actually the realities of, of the market, which may well block some of the more far-fetched uh, reforms of, of the Italian government. Could we just for a second, Paddy, take a closer look at both of these parties? I mean, the Five Star Movement, which emerged as the biggest party in Italy in March with 33% of the vote, it's less than a decade old. It was founded by a comedian, Beppe Grillo. It, it, it's variously described as anti-establishment and populist, but how would you describe it? I mean, what does the Five Star Movement stand for? It's very difficult to say what it stands for, except that it's against the establishment. Yeah, I think and I asked you the one, question before, actually. Yeah. Well, one of the manifestations <laughs> of that anti-establishment uh, attitude, for example, is is the very blunt turning down of an offer by Berlusconi the other day to to become the prime minister for the for the two uh, parties, uh, and Five Star saying, "No, we're trying to change the system to get rid of people like uh, Mr. Berlusconi." Uh, I think. Concretely, it's it's you've got to see it as um, a southern-based rural party, um, who's who, which is has sort of radical tinges to it. It's pop, its policy, for example, on 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 the minimum wage would be something that would be more akin to many of the left-wing parties. Its policies on immigration, however, are much closer to Liga, and they uh, are are um, much more traditionally right-wing. So. It is it is very difficult to define, and one of the features of of, of uh, Five Star, of course, and of La Liga is that neither of them have served in government, so we don't actually know what they would do if they were uh, if they were in 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 cabinet. Uh, there is some hope that maybe the responsibilities of office would would tame them and would restrain them. Uh, but a lot of Italian commentators are saying, actually, no, uh, there's no reason to believe that at all. Um, as you say, the, they haven't been in government, the Five Star Movement, but we have seen them, for example, they, they've had the, the, the mayority in Rome. Um, so they've had, we've, we've seen them, had a chance to observe them in local administrations, as it were. Has that told us anything about how competent they might be? Well, they say one swallow doesn't make a summer. And basically, Rome is their only uh, serious uh, um, Crack at running running a city or an administration, and it was a fiasco. And it is not it's not good news. The league, I suppose, is probably a little easier to categorise. Is it essentially an anti-immigration party? Essentially, it's a right-wing nationalist anti anti-immigration party, with a lot of the features of a um, of, of of fascist party. Actually, uh, one of the interesting things is, and and what makes the the coalition so bizarre is that it is largely a northern-based uh, party which has its roots in, in the uh, relatively wealthy communities of, the, of northern Italy. And they, for example, are the ones who are pushing this idea of, of massive tax cuts, which would, uh, which would assist 
their supporters. How you reconcile that with an anti-tax uh, cut party uh, like uh, Five Star, we, we will see. Its leader, Matteo Salvini, he's um, set to become the interior minister and that would put him in charge of immigration. And th- their policy is to deport up to 500,000 illegal immigrants. So do you think they can possibly do something on that scale? And what kind of reaction would that generate elsewhere, including in Brussels? Yeah, the the manifesto, the, the programme uh, of government isn't quite as ambitious as that. Uh, they talk about um, a number of different uh, uh, policies, reviewing EU Mediterranean missions to make sure that no new arrivals arrived in Italy unless there was a, an agreement on, on uh, a shared response by other EU member states. Uh, they talk about reforming the Dublin Treaty, which is what we're all doing, actually. And so uh, there's absolutely no guarantee that they will get what they want out of those reforms. And But they are talking about setting up um, temporary camps for refugees that are in Italy at the moment. And uh, that is, is alarming, as well as checks on Islamic organizations, which will, which will cause concern among the civil liberties c- c- communities. Now, you mentioned there a moment ago, um, they're not going to nominate Silvio Berlusconi as, as, as prime minister, but they have, the, I think, one of the last, uh, the outstanding issues of contention between them was the question of who they would nominate as prime minister. They have now come up with a, a name. It's a university professor called Giuseppe Conte. What do we know about him? Relatively little. Uh, he is associated with the Five Star Movement. He is reported to be a uh, uh, an expert on uh, deregulation and uh, debureaucratization, and was going to get that job in in a government if if uh, De Maio was uh, uh, was given the chance. He was named in that that role um, during the the election campaign. He's not a member. Of, of Parliament. Dumao being the leader be. of the Five Star Movement, Paddy, sorry, I think we didn't mention uh, that. Sorry, yeah, yes, the yeah, leader of the, yeah, Maio, yeah. the Five Star Movement, Luigi De Maio, uh, 31-year-old uh, enfant terrible. <laughs> uh, he is... Um, uh, Conti is, is, is close to him, apparently, and uh, he is apparently quite uh, tough, uh, um, a, a lawyer who specialises in, in contracts, and uh, who has apparently close connections with a number of, of senior Vatican figures. But apart from that, we don't know. We, 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 what we do know is that he has no experience whatsoever in uh, administration or in, in running a country or, or an institution. And I was struck by a quote in the Financial Times from a, a Piero Ignazzi, who's a professor of political science at the University of Bologna. And he said Mr. Conte is, quote, an unknown character, a low profile choice, a person like 10,000, 100,000 others in, in Italy. He'll just be the interpreter of the will of the party leaders. And there is a concern, I, isn't there, that, that he will just be there as a kind of technocrat to, to carry out the, the, you know, the instructions of, of, of the, the, the people who are really in power. I think that's right. I think when he comes to sit at, at European Council meetings, people will be looking at, at, at this man and wondering, is he the person who's actually in charge? He, they, they say that he will be responsible for brokering you know, any disagreements that, that arise between the two parties and, and, and trying to patch up, patch up agreements. Uh, but it's not that he's going to be a prime minister leading from the front at all. It's more like a chairman and... Uh, uh, we're not going to see a particularly strong figure here. In fact, the naming of the ministers is in the gift of, of uh, 
both the, the two party leaders, not uh, not of himself. Of course, Paddy, the, the Italian uh, Italian election was the latest in a series that delivered a sort of anti-establishment result. Um, and we devoted a, an entire podcast a while back to the rise of populism in Europe and, and Brexit is part of that picture. Is there a sense, any sense in Brussels, in, does the establishment there feel under siege or do they look across and see Emmanuel Macron in the, in the Elysee and Angela Merkel in charge in Germany and think, well, all is still OK? No, I think there is a, a certain amount of concern. I, I don't think that it's a, a, so we're having a new Brexit moment here. Um, it, it is not a question of the Italians leaving the European Union. Um, there is concern that this is this is likely to be a, a very obstructionist and difficult government. Uh, so, but it's not a systemic threat, I think, to the to the European Union, and I think it's not seen as that. But there is also uh, a sense that they've really got to get their act together, uh, starting now ahead of next year's European elections, because it's quite likely that the, the populist tide may well sweep into the European Parliament as well. That's great, Paddy. We'll we'll leave it there for now. Thanks a lot for that. Well, that other election I mentioned at the outset took place at the weekend and saw Nicolas Maduro returned as president of Venezuela for a further six-year term with a comfortable majority of 68%. Tom Hennigan, our South American correspondent, joins me now from Sao Paulo. Tom, the Venezuelan economy is on its knees. Inflation is running at an estimated 13,000%. Imports of food and medicine have collapsed. Refugees are fleeing the country in very large numbers. How did Nicolas Maduro win this election? Well, if you um, listen to what he says and what his uh, few remaining allies around the region um, say about it is because the Venezuelan people have given a great lesson to the North American empire and uh, delivered a knockout blow against interventionism and coup mongering by uh, the regime in Washington that Maduro uh, still has the support of a majority of the population for the Bolivarian Revolution, which is coming up on its 20th uh, year anniversary shortly, and that um, he still has support for what is an increasingly chaotic and radicalized regime in Venezuela. Um, So that's one interpretation. I think a more likely interpretation, which is what most of the uh, other uh, countries in the region, led by um, Brazil, Argentina, Mexico, Chile, Canada, uh, the European Union, the Organization of American States, uh, and the I think it's fair to say the international community in general, is that the democratic regime in Venezuela has been snuffed out by uh, the Chavismo uh, regime. And this election was, I think, lacking in all sorts of um, fair conditions, transparency, and the basic minimal uh, conditions necessary to hold a, a free and fair election. And uh, that is why you look at uh, Venezuela's principal neighbours in the region, they all now say that it is a authoritarian regime and no longer a democracy. And I think that explains the victory. The, the turnout was low um, at 46%, not much more than half what it was in, in 2013 when Maduro last won a presidential election. What What's the significance of that, do you think? I think it's uh, two things. One, it was 46% officially. Uh, There have been people inside the Electoral Commission um, leaking to uh, some of the international news agencies in Venezuela that the turnout was even lower, maybe about a third of the population. Um, I think it's two things. One, the main opposition uh, group, um, it called for a boycott. So I think most of the people who were already siding with the opposition did boycott the the vote. 
Um, there was a former uh, Chavista who has gone over to the opposition, then broke with it and ran as an independent candidate, Henry Falcon, who came in second. He ran and he did um, manage to get 1.8 million votes. But the the I think the hidden um, fact in the numbers is that a large chunk of people who were with Hugo Chavez, who founded this Bolivarian revolution, and Nicolas Maduro, the people who voted for him, in, 28, in 2013, the last presidential election, they're deserting him. And the reasons are everything, as you said, hunger, disease um, are increasingly uh, rife in Venezuela. The economy is entering total collapse. And uh, the votes that Maduro did get, according to the opposition and uh, foreign media and the few international observers who were able to get into the country, a lot of that just comes from blatant vote buying. Uh, there were around 80% of polling centers in Venezuela on Sunday had stationed nearby tents where government officials told people that they could go there and if they could prove that they had voted, they would be able to swipe a government-issued food card, ration card, and get um, a, a food parcel. Um, in a land where hunger is increasingly a problem, that was obviously attractive enough to get a number of people out. There were also reports uh, here in the Brazilian media of in some of the large slums in Caracas of government linked militias going door to door in the slums and um, telling people to get out and vote. Otherwise, there would be trouble. So I think, you know, the what we're now seeing is just the absolute last hardcore of Chavismo and added to that a certain amount of people who out of desperation or fear are voting for Maduro. But the, the reason for the low turnout is definitely that he's lost all support amongst the majority of the population. You mentioned the international observers, Tom. What international observers were there? Well, they didn't let anyone um, uh, officially, any official observer teams in, but there were um, certain people um, from uh, various countries who went in independently to try and report on what was going on. They were invited in by the opposition and other civic groups in Venezuela, but it was nothing systematic and their efforts were hampered by the government. Tom, we, we all recall the violent scenes in Venezuela over several months last year when opponents of the Maduro regime protested in their, their hundreds of thousands. What has become of that opposition movement? Was it visible during the election? Well, the boycott was, if we if we look at the turnout number, collapsed um, from 2013. So the boycott was largely observed by opposition supporters um, and the the fact that uh, most of them di- didn't go and vote for uh, Henry Falcon. The the main opposition group said, look, this uh, this candidate is only serving the interests of Chavismo. He's given a veneer of respectability to a vote that the regime will never let themselves lose. And most people actually, um, I think, accepted uh, that logic and stayed away from, from the polls. The possibility of more street demonstrations will wait and see. So far, it's been quite uh, quiet and sullen reaction to um, Sunday's process. And I think that's down to the fact that there have been over the years a number of um, of street protests that have lasted um, sometimes for weeks or months, uh, dozens of, of people killed, uh, hundreds if not thousands rounded up, jailed, arbitrarily arrested, tortured. And I think now people realize that the regime um, and this would be a, an, an observation um, that might prove wrong. It, it could explode at any moment. But I think that there is 
uh, a sense that most people to realize that Chavismo is is playing for keeps and that the amount of repression in the country is stepping up. So while we have a total breakdown in any semblance of democratic norms in the country, you also have more and more reports. We've had it from Human Rights Watch and, and other uh, human rights groups in the region that there is an increase of arrests, detentions, arbitrary detentions, torture uh, in the country. And I think um, there's a, a reasonable case to be made that people are just afraid to come out on the streets. Tom, I mean, Maduro does now have, I suppose, a new mandate of sorts. Um, it, it may be, it, it may lack credibility um, in the eyes of many observers, but he has won this election. Since last summer, he's got this constituent assembly behind him, which is, you know, really packed with loyalists. So uh, there shouldn't be any obstacles for him now to deliver whatever programme he wants to, to deliver. I mean, does he have the wherewithal to, to turn the country's fortunes around? I think the short answer is no. Um, you know, there's two two issues there, I think, that are working against them. One, um, externally, um, the international community, particularly in the region and the United States, is tightening, um, tightening sanctions against the regime. It's making it more difficult to access um, foreign financing to, to keep itself going. Venezuela is absolutely dependent on hard currency to pay for imports of foods and medicines. Um, and it, it, to do that, it needs to keep its oil industry going. Uh, the United States yesterday imposed new sanctions, which are going to make that more difficult. Um, and I think there is a international scenario now working against it. Uh, you had a group of um, countries in the region, most of the big players in South uh, South America, Mexico, Canada, they came out and said that they're going to tighten up fan- uh, financial uh, sanctions on the regime as well. Um, so it is becoming harder for the regime outside of Venezuela to manoeuvre. But even if it wasn't, I think we also have to recognise that the the philosophy of, of Chavismo, this sort of uh, top-down state-run uh, economy, has failed. So since they've been in power since 1999, we've seen food production collapse, all sorts of manufacturing collapse, heavy industry has collapsed. Um, the oil industry, which is the, the kind of the goose that lays Venezuela's golden egg, that is in a state of, of precipitous decline getting close to collapse as well. And that's the only source of foreign income they have. Um, Chavez put a general in charge of the industry there a short while ago, and he promised that he was going to boost production by a million barrels a day by the end of this year. So far this year, it's dropped by 20, almost a quarter, 23%, um, and no signs of that improving. Uh, a lot of the foreign oil companies in Venezuela, and particularly the service companies that work with them, They say that theft is rampant, corruption is rampant, that they are not able to get paid for the services that they are providing. A lot of them are either stranded in the country or pulling out. So the one real um, industry that could help turn the economy around, that is entering into a state of collapse as well. And the problem is, is that even if the price of oil does go back up, Venezuela has mortgaged its future to an enormous extent that it will take it years, probably decades, to dig itself out of the hole that it's in. So it's very hard to see how the regime can turn this around quickly. And Tom, what impact then is all of this having on the people of Venezuela? I mean, how, how bad is the situation there now? How would you describe it? Well, talking uh, recently with uh, people in Caracas, you know, the, the things that they say that particularly for um, 
for poor Venezuelans, food is becoming increasingly scarce. There have been studies showing that the population is involuntarily losing weight at a rapid degree. We see infant, infant mortality is on the rise. Uh, there is a huge spike in malaria, other diseases that had been contained like diphtheria, tuberculosis, they're, um, they're returned with a vengeance. And uh, for many people, they're just abandoning all hope of, of the situation improving at all. There is a slow but mass exodus out of the country. Uh, since the end of 2015, the UN estimates that over a million Venezuelans have left. That could now be as much as 1.5 million. And by the end of this year, uh, some estimates say that one in 10 Venezuelans might have fled the country. So I think for ordinary Venezuelans, um, the situation is desperate. Violence is out of control. Uh, much of the country come nightfall is locked up at home because there's very little sense of security. Um, and because the government has run out of money, it just doesn't have the ability to, to pay for the basic necessities to keep a society functioning anymore. And this is all the more traumatic in Venezuela, which was once known as, as uh, Saudi Wela because of its huge oil reserves. It is the biggest oil reserves in the world. It was once one of the richest and most developed countries in South America. So this is an absolutely traumatic collapse. And it's not as if the country didn't have social inequalities and problems um, before Hugo Chavez came to power in, in 1999. But the fact is that it has never experienced a crisis like this in its history before. Although I think, I suppose for the record, Tom, it is, it is worth just emphasising that point. But before Chavez came, I mean, the income inequalities there were massive, weren't they? So I suppose nobody wants to see a return to that era either. Well, the, the income uh, inequalities in Venezuela were, um, by global standards, uh, very striking, as they are in all of Latin America. By Latin American standards, um, they were far from being the worst and because of the oil economy, they were uh, the the um, various governments were able in some way, mainly through populist mechanisms, to distribute a certain level of of, of uh, income to the poor. What really helped fuel um, Chavez's rise to power was the collapse of the oil price in the 1990s. So Venezuela um, historically has always been hugely dependent on the international price of oil. Uh, for its well-being. So in the 70s, when you had um, the oil blockade and the formation of OPEC um, and the Arab response to the to the Yom Kippur War and later the uh, Iranian Revolution um, saw another massive spike in the price of oil, Venezuela was um, living a standard of, of living beyond the imagination of most South American countries. Venezuelans were known for traveling abroad and going into any shop and saying, oh, I like that. Give me two. Uh, and they were they were famous for being a very wealthy people. And even then they were able to attract in the 70s mass immigration from places like Portugal. Uh, there's a large Portuguese community um, that uh, moved to Venezuela. Um, that all when the, the price of oil collapsed in the 90s, that put the country into um, a huge economic tailspin. And that is the background to Chavez's rise to power. And there was inequality uh, in Venezuela. But what ha happened under Chavez is the years of his great popularity and success can be exactly traced to the price of oil. 
And the high price of oil and the Venezuelans' uh, conviction that it would keep going and push through $200 a barrel, that was the the impetus for them to borrow massively and spend liberally, typically in election years, and the base for their power. Now again, Venezuela is back uh, into another crisis and a much worse crisis than even in the 90s because the price of oil has gone down again. Rather than break $200 a barrel, it went down below 50 and the government is out of cash. And what's most, I think, um, disappointing about the whole Chavez experiment is that when Chavez was elected in 98 and came into office in 99, one of his key promises was that he was going to break the economic dependence of the country's economy on oil. And instead, it's actually become more dependent on oil. And this is now the situation that the country finds itself in now that the prices has gone down. And Tom, just maybe just briefly, maybe to finish up, Maduro has been elected now for a six year term. Do you think he can possibly see out the six years or what is it going to take to actually bring about a change in this situation? Hard to see, um, you know, uh, speaking with one former Brazilian ambassador yesterday and he was saying that the Trump administration um, really needs to um, do sanctions uh, as necessary, but try and work within multilateral organizations because uh, recently we had Trump saying that calling on the military perhaps to stage a a coup or said potentially that, you know, the U.S. could invade Venezuela. That sort of talk is nonsense and is just going to reinforce uh, the regime's belief that its problems are um, being caused by an imperialist Washington rather than its own internal contradictions. Um, I think the hopes of as are, you know, a typical way of removing dictatorships in Latin American history of a military intervention they are diminished for two reasons. One, the military are heavily invested in the regime. Chavez has turned over large parts of the economy to the generals. Many of these are reportedly become very wealthy under under Chavez. And secondly, the Cuban government have provided a lot of intelligence support. So you have a lot of Cuban operators in Venezuela who help run the intelligence system. And Cuban intelligence is uh, some of the best operators in the world. And they have been very good at identifying and snuffing out dissent in the armed forces. So that looks like a long shot of the military removing Chavez, uh, sorry, removing Maduro or kicking Chavismo out of power. Um, elections, that avenue also seems now to, for the time being anyway, to have been snuffed out as a means of, of, of changing power. There is some talk that as, you know, even within Chavismo, it's quite aware that they do not have the support they once had. Some Chavistas are supposedly very uh, disillusioned with Maduro's handling of the situation. There could be a, a, a heave against him within Chavismo, which wouldn't necessarily mean a return to democracy, but maybe a change of leadership at the top. But that would not necessarily mean more moderates uh, coming in because uh, to Maduro's left, there are some uh, even more radical elements that uh, a, a internal power struggle within Chavismo could actually lead to the radicalization of the regime. So it's hard to see at the moment how um, the situation could change for the better. OK, Tom, we'll leave it there for now. Thanks a lot for that. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.